You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Welcome all to this Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm going to be your host this week. I'm David Grubbs, an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. With me this week is Michael Farmer. How are you, sir? I'm good, David. How are you? Uh, I'm well, and I still can't remember where in Georgia you are, even though I know... Woodstock. That's right. I was was like, it's a callback to an episode we did recently, and then... (laughs) And then I couldn't remember I live in Taxi Driver, Georgia. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Taxi driver Georgia. Yeah, I, I live. I live it's, in. It's just west of Nazianzas. Yes. I live. I live in abysmal seventies New York, Georgia. I just can't wait for a good hard rain to come and really wash the scum off the streets here. Of, of Woodstock. <laughs> nice. Also, Nathan Gilmore, professor of English at Manual College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Um, do y'all need a hard rain too? No, man, I am stardust and I am golden. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, before we turn to today's uh, topic of surprise, what have we got uh, on the network? Sectarian Review has an episode on the Coen Brothers film, A Serious Man, on its uh, 10-year anniversary. Uh, and we've got a Christian humanist profiles, do we not, Dr. Grubbs? We do. And I can't remember which one it is. David Lyle Jeffrey. Oh, that one. Oh, gosh, that one was a, that was a great one, yeah. Uh, scripture in the English Poetic Imagination. Um, uh, David Lyle Jeffrey is... Uh, I, I think one of the living godfathers of uh, a, a Christian perspective in English and English literature and the humanities general gen, in general, and uh, it was just a delight to hang out with him for an hour and uh, pick his brain and uh, see him weave together things that uh, uh, we both love, though he's loved them much longer and I suspect better than I have. We will also have a Christian feminist podcast on the Netflix series Altamar or High Seas. And I know that because I'm on it. You're the one who recommended that to my wife, are you not, Michael? I am, yeah. I watched that program and uh, I said, you know who would love this? Katie Grubbs. And you were right. And I, I was right. Excellent. Well... With uh, housekeeping out of the way, our topic this week is the second Sunday of Advent, which, when we record, is the Sunday that's coming, and when you listen, it will be the sun the, the Sunday that was. And I'm interested in the uh, the traditional texts of Scripture that are are preached, are expounded. Uh, uh, in in the Sundays uh, of Advent, uh, within those 
traditions that observe a, a kind of traditional liturgy and, and lectionary. So before we dig into these particular sermons, uh, which come from preachers in the church centuries back, Nathan, could you sketch out for us what those biblical texts uh, associated with the second Sunday of Advent are? Certainly, certainly. Uh, in addition to the psalm reading, what you're going to have in your Old Testament reading in the second Sunday of Advent is a reading either from Isaiah or from Baruch. Uh, if you're in a church that uh, doesn't dig those deuterocanonicals, a reading from Malachi usually comes in. The lectionary, of course, is on a three-year cycle in the modern church, uh, so the reading is different each year. But what they have in common is that they focus on the coming of a this-worldly figure, uh, someone who is coming to bring a message of justice without necessarily ending the age. We save that for later. Uh, and it's understandable because the three gospel readings, uh, Mark one year, Matthew one year, Luke the next year, uh, focus on the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. You're going to have Luke 3, Matthew 3, and Mark 1 for those readings. The epistle readings are going to be uh, St. Paul's epistles, and they're going to focus on uh, hopes for an age to come, so, you know, pretty standard Advent stuff. What's interesting is, uh, I'll confess, David, that I, I'm not sure when the three-year cycle actually began as an official uh, order of scriptural readings, but within the readings that uh, you had us do today, uh, John Chrysostom is preaching from Matthew 3, and Alfred is pre preaching from Luke 3, so there is already some kind of variation uh, going on in these readings. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting to look back and and to see uh, maybe, maybe hints of this. Now, I, I don't know that in the case of uh, Chrysostom that, it, that it's quite exactly um, uh, that he's necessarily working with the patterns that we're working with here. But Alfrich, uh, absolutely. Um, Alfrich's sermon, the title is the second Sunday in the Lord's Advent. So right, right. <laughs> he's certainly working with uh, something that's at least um, moving towards the lectionary that you just ex explained to us. Well, I'd like to start with a little background on John Chrysostom, who is one of the ancient church's most famous preachers. So, Michael, what is important for us to know about John Chrysostom? In, in what ways do you see this sermon presenting his styles, uh, his style, his goals for preaching, and so forth? Well, I think probably the most important thing to know about him is that Chrysostom is not his last name, but a, um, a name attached to him, a, a kind of term of approval. It means golden-voiced or golden-mouthed in, I, I guess that's Greek, I don't know. So it is. that, that it's... Uh, that, that itself is attached to him because of his reputation as an excellent preacher. And, and in fact, of all the early church fathers, he's probably the one best known for his sermons, although um, many other church fathers preached. Uh, I'm sorry, as, as you'll hear if you listen to uh, the Christian Feminist Podcast, my cat Dottie will not shut up while I record anymore. So she's sitting here uh, and wants to have, she, she too is golden-tongued in her way. Um. I would say that it's probably fair to say that as Augustine is for the West, Chrysostom is for the East, both in terms of general historic era. They're just a couple centuries apart, which when we're talking about some people this old is not that far. 
Um, in, in terms of the, the volume of their writings, Chrysostom has many, many more texts than any one person could read, I suspect, uh, unless, they, uh, unless they made it their life's goal to read them. And he's also quite important to the East in terms of developing the liturgy that I believe is still used most, uh, most Sunday mornings in Eastern Orthodox churches. So he's a really important figure. I don't know enough about ancient preaching to say much more than that John is uh, is known for being relatively straightforward in his biblical interpretation as opposed to somebody like Clement of Alexandria to be asynchronous. Um, you know, there's several, again, several centuries that's, that separate those two people. And I, I think you do see that here. There's not a lot of allegory in what he's doing. There's a little bit, but not a lot compared to a lot of the other Eastern church fathers from this era. Um, so yeah, this, this is a person who was well-renowned for his sermon, so much so that he was kidnapped by rich people in Constantinople and brought to that city so that he might preach before them. And then he went ahead and <laughs> pre preached a really nasty sermon about the rich just to show them what's what. So, so he's uncompromising and, uh, and well-spoken. What have I left out, David? Well, one thing that I hinted at before uh, is that this sermon was not, so far as I could tell, written as a sermon for the second Sunday of Advent, but written as part of a series of, of homilies preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. So, at least in the ways that, that I've encountered uh, John Chrysostom, it seems as if, for the most part, he preached uh, sort of continually through a text, instead of having um, having the text that, that were selected for the homily coming from, from some kind of uh, rotating lectionary that's, that's giving different passages of scripture from different books each week. So, uh, sure. Lectio Continua, uh, Continua, if I remember uh, right, being the... Yep, that's the phrase. Yeah. So, uh, so when I was uh, looking for uh, a good, a good uh, conversation partner for Alfrich, uh, it was, it was actually a little, a little difficult to find uh, initially until I, it, it occurred to me to, to, to simply consult the lectionaries, see which texts are commonly preached, and then go look up John Chrysostom. <laughs> and so, even if this might not have been preached for Second Sunday of Advent, it's very, very clearly um, in the vein, uh, uh, charting with the themes uh, that the lectionary sets for, for that day. Sure. And David, one more thing we should probably say about John Chrysostom is that he is one of the most unrepentant anti-Semites in the early church. So you don't read a whole lot about him without coming across some pretty nasty things he says about Jewish people. And you, you do get a little bit of that in this sermon as well, although I think if you don't know that he's a notorious anti-Semite, you might be able to kind of blink it away. But once you know that, um, some of the things he says about the, the Jews of... John the Baptist's day are less than palatable. I mean, to be fair, some of the things that John the Baptist says about the Jews of John the Baptist's day are less than palatable. But I, yeah, I think but you're, John the Baptist yes. is a Jew of John the Baptist's day. <laughs> right, 
Right. So yeah, I, I think your point is well taken for those who are just reading this 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 homily on its own. It might just seem as if this homilist is using the rhetoric of the text, but uh, I, I appreciate you drawing attention to the fact that when Chrysostom uses that rhetoric, it's in some ways um, highlight, highlighting uh, highlighting uh, ways that he thinks as well. So our other homilist is Alfred of Incham. I know I like this guy a lot, but he doesn't get the same play historically that Gold Tongue John does. So, Nathan, who is Alfrich, and what's typical of an Alfrichian sermon? Well, Alfrich is another person who, uh, unfortunately, gets some uh, gets into some problems preaching about the Jews, unfortunately, but that's not mainly what we're here for. What we're mainly here for uh, is that he is a 10th century abbot, uh, he was a monastic preacher, and he was commissioned to write homilies to be distributed to the churches around England to write them in the vernacular uh, so that the priests whose Latin was shaky at best uh, would be able to, del to deliver true doctrine to the people. Uh, so this Advent sermon, uh, yeah, this Advent homily, Advent sermon, uh, is part of that group of texts. Um, this is a preacher who really digs Gregory the Great. Uh, I've only read a handful of sermons from Alfrich, and I haven't read one yet that doesn't quote Gregory the Great. Uh, you know, the 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 way that I uh, you know find a way to bring up uh, Alistair McIntyre in every episode, he brings Gregory the Great into every sermon. <laughs> uh, he was also commissioned, and this is an in a fascinating project to me, just because of some of the stereotypes uh, that I was raised on, frankly. Uh, but he was commissioned to. Uh, be one of the translators uh, for an English Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Now, it only ran from Genesis to Joshua, uh, but here we are in the 10th century, uh, and, you know, you have a, a commissioned English translation of the Bible that's going out to the people so that they can understand it in their own tongue. Uh, so, I mean, you know, this is not to say uh, that there's no resistance to vernacular Bibles 400, 500 years later. It is to say that the story isn't as simple as sometimes it is presented. As far as, you know, an Alfrich sermon, I'm not going to try that adjective, David. Uh, <laughs> when Alfrich writes a sermon, what he tends to do uh, is to give a narrative account uh, of whatever text he is dealing with. So, uh, in this case, the beginning of uh, Jesus' public ministry. Uh, he tends uh, to do what I was trained not to do. Uh, when I was in seminary, and that is he brings in elements from every possible text into his story. Uh, you know, I was trained, if you're preaching on Matthew, you stick inside Matthew. If you're preaching on Luke, you stick inside Luke. He brings it all in. Uh, if there is a relevant datum uh, about the text that he is preaching, he's going to bring it in there. Then what he tends to do, uh, and often this coincides with bringing in Gregory, uh, is he gives an allegorical interpretation for whatever's going on. Now, this is uh, something that you would rightly anticipate if you are doing an Old Testament sermon. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the tradition of allegorical readings of the Old Testament is actually older than Christianity. Uh, the Alexandrian 
tradition in uh, Jewish biblical interpretation is very allegorical in character. What makes uh, Alfrich interesting is that he also allegorizes uh, New Testament narratives so that they reflect Christ, and sometimes he allegorizes narratives about Christ so that they refer to Christ, uh, which <laughs> might seem difficult, and it is, but he does it. So it's David, an allegory uh, you know, inception. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Yo, dog, I heard you like allegories. No. Uh, so, David, I mean, when you pitched this to me, it was kind of like, you know, Michael pitching me a question saying, Nathan, tell us a little bit about John Updike's major novels. Uh, so, why don't you fill in what <laughs> gaps I've left here? You know, okay. th- it, it strikes me, before you go on, it strikes me that there's a flaw in the way we've been conducting this show for 10 years, which is that <laughs> the, the topics are chosen by the person who knows the most about them. And that person ends up talking the least. What's wrong with that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I like to think of it as like a, a, a weekly comprehensive exam uh, in some ways. But all, or, or, or a, weekly, uh, a weekly opportunity to get two people to talk to me about something I'm really interested in. <laughs> it's weak anyway. Well, I don't know that it's weak because you know, most of the, uh, pr- pretty much everything that that you brought up, Nathan, is what I would have brought up about Alfrich. Uh, he, if he, one of the things that he says in the uh, the introduction to his collection of Catholic homilies is that he wants to make available not just good doctrine but access to good sources. And so when he's quoting Gregory, as you note him doing. Uh, he also likes to quote uh, Jerome. He likes to quote Augustine. Um, those are, it's he's bringing erudition into the sermon. But what he's also doing is providing uh, the priest who does not have Latin literacy with access to uh, a thematic collection of patristic quotes on the texts of the lectionary through the year so that uh, as they're reading these texts they also have um, within embedded in his sermons almost a kind of uh, a topical and calendar uh, calendar charted uh, commentary of of the fathers uh, so it's it's yeah the Catholic homilies are a really interesting book he's not just showing off he's he's giving access um, in a, to people who he knows don't have time to sit down and read, a, you know, all of John Chrysostom. <laughs> right, right. And actually, David, I've got a follow-up question for that. Um, is his and first of all, he really digs Gregory. Listeners, don't let David steer you off of that. But does his penchant for Gregory the Great relate in any way to the fact that Gregory is the the first to send Roman missionaries to England? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Gregory. The you know Bede calls uh, Gregory our apostle, and that that attitude shows up throughout um, Anglo-Saxon writers dealing with uh, dealing with the figure uh, the figure of Gregory the First or Gregory the Great. Um, I've got no idea why that took thirteen years for me to put together, but there you go. <laughs> yeah, uh, there is uh, if I remember rightly uh, on the. Uh, on the feast day of Gregory, Alfred has a homily in which he retells the uh, in which he retells the 
Gregory encountering slave boys in the market story. I I, I think I remember that being the case. Um, I'd have to go back and look, but I uh, I, I know that Alfrich tells that that tells that story, um, even expands it. Uh, in a way. Does the pun work in English or only in Latin? Uh, the fun thing is that that Latin is quadrilingual. <laughs> oh, that's right, that's right. I remember your paper now. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, that, that, that pun goes all over the place. Um, but it starts with English. Yeah, Grubbs, uh, Grubbs wrote a whole conference paper on dad jokes in Middle English or Old English. Yeah. But as glossolalia, if 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 it's if I could be believed, I, I, yeah, I, I'm I'm not really sure whether that was my finest hour or just my most typical hour. Oh, I think it was your finest hour, but also <laughs> your most typical. It was it was certainly your most typical. Vintage grubs, vintage grubs. Excellent. Well. Uh, as as my ego swells, I, I feel the need to repent. And both John and Alfred are really interested in repentance, which is good. It's timely. It's an Advent thing. So what is repentance for these two preachers? What should motivate us to repent? And where do you find them in harmony and or in dissonance on this topic, Michael? I think to understand this, we really have to get outside of the way um, Western Christians in the 20th and 21st centuries typically think about Advent, which is as a as as Christmas tide, essentially as as the Christmas season, as yep. something leading up to Christmas. Um, Advent does lead up to Christmas, but it leads up to Christmas the way that a fast day leads up to a feast day, and so in the Eastern Orthodox Church in particular. Advent is a fast. It's a 40-day fast, just like Lent is a 40-day fast. And while the strictures are a little looser than they are uh, at Lent, they're not much looser. They're, they're, it's a much more strenuous fast than what most of us are used to. I believe they go completely vegan for 40 days, including Thanksgiving, which uh, it's got to be rough for Americans who are Eastern Orthodox. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't think of Advent as a time of of fasting and repentance, uh, you're not going to be able to understand these sermons at all. If you think of Advent as being kind of little Christmas, uh, you're, you're just not going to get it. Uh, because the whole point for both of these guys is, uh, is repentance. The other thing to keep in mind is that Advent celebrates two periods of waiting. The first is the waiting for Jesus's birth, which is commemorated in Christmas. And that's, that's where John Chrysostom really picks up the, uh, the repentance theme because he, he reads Isaiah uh, and Isaiah's call to make the path straight for the Lord as a call for repentance. Uh, whatever the crooked things in our modern world are, and apparently John Chrysostom was quite fond of delineating the crooked things in his society. He, here's the list he gives in section three of this sermon. Our whole corrupt life, publicans, harlots, robbers, magicians, as many as having been perverted before, afterwards walked in the right way. So the idea is anything that's crooked in your life, you need to make straight. And the, the two ways you make things straight for Chrysostom are, number one, living ascetically, which he did uh, and which he certainly expects you to do. And 
weirdly enough, doing the opposite actions of our sins. So if you have the sin of gluttony, the solution is to fast. If you have the sin of lust, the solution is to refrain even from licit sexual relations and so forth. If, you're, if, you're, if your besetting sin is greediness, uh, you need to give more to the poor than you otherwise would. And, and that's what he sees as making, uh, making the path straight for the Lord, leveling out the mountains, as Isaiah talks about. Uh, so you have to do the opposite of your sin. So on one hand, Advent is waiting for Christmas. It's waiting for the initial coming. On the, second, on the other hand, it's waiting for the second coming. It's waiting for Christ to come again. And this is where Alfred picks things up. He says that the signs given at the end of time, the, the signs of that, are meant to wean us from our love of the world, uh, which is another form of asceticism, although he doesn't speak about asceticism quite as openly as, uh, as Chrysostom does. Here's what he says. I have it marked as paragraph 12. Correct your lives and change your conduct. Punish your evil deeds with weeping. Withstand the temptations of the devil. Askew evil and do good, and you will be by so much the more secure at the advent of the eternal judge as you now with terror anticipate his severity. So both of them see this period, this, um, this season of fasting as a, as a chance to turn your back on your sins and turn in the direction you're supposed to go rather than as a season to go to Christmas parties, uh, watch Hallmark movies and drink too many Christmas cordials. The time for that might come. I'm, I'm, I suspect it doesn't for John Chrysostom, but the time for that might come, but it comes it, 12 days following Christmas, not the 40 days leading up to Christmas. Anything you want to pitch in here, Nathan? Yeah, one image that I uh, picked up in uh, Chrysostom, uh, namely that John the Baptist is the philosopher of the philosophy worthy of heaven. And uh, I, I picked up on that because of, you know, some re recent research I've been doing that I've talked about on a few episodes uh, on the notion that uh, the philosophical schools, if you will, uh, of the Greco-Roman world were in a lot of ways the predecessors of monasteries of the Christian era. So, you know, I, I, I found that interesting and also connected to this notion of repentance uh, is that John the Baptist is, among other things, uh, forging the way for a new form of life, a new discipline, uh, in the same way that the Aristotelians or the Stoics or the Epicureans were forging a way for a new kind of discipline in their own moment. So it, it's a moment where Chrysostom is definitely drawing on uh, cultural resources that his audience would have been familiar with. Uh, and, you know, well, one thing to note is that, you know, we talked a, a few weeks back about Gregory Nazianzus uh, these two would have been contemporary there in Constantinople. So, I mean, you would have been dealing with, you know, one of the more literate uh, audiences for homilies uh, in the Christian, in, in the history of the church. So uh, it's interesting that he, that he turns John the Baptist into a kind of philosopher, not in the way that the Jesus Seminar tries to do with Jesus, but uh, in a way that is fitting for his own cultural moment. Very cool. Well, transitioning to that uh, that apocalyptic that that you alluded to, Michael, um, I'd like you to unpack that a little bit more, Nathan. Uh, how do the what does the advent of the Lord mean for John 
and for Alfrich, and how are both of them apocalyptic, even though one of them we would probably more readily flag today as, as apocalyptic. Both are, really. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to start with the one that's a little bit more difficult, and that's John Chrysostom, and it's because he is uh, part of this milieu uh, that is, again, very, very heavily influenced by uh, Platonic, Neoplatonic, Stoic thought, uh, and so his tendency in this particular sermon, I'll confess that uh, you know, the grand library of Chrysostom that Michael alluded to, I've only dipped in and out of, but in this text he tends to moralize and psychologize the apocalyptic, uh, you know, the character of the revelation, which is what apocalyptic means, uh, is that the sins of the person's soul, and it's the eternal soul, so it's quite important, but the sins of the soul become revealed and therefore subject to the light, and therefore the possibility opens up for a moral transformation. Uh, there's not as much focus uh, on the end of the age as there is in Alfrich, who I'll talk about here in a little bit. Uh, and again, that's that's understandable because, you know, the Greek patristic tradition uh, tends to be extraordinarily focused uh, on the infinite importance of the eternal soul. Uh, so, I mean, you know, uh, it's not that he thinks that the world is simply going to go on forever, but in this particular text, he doesn't focus a whole lot on the end of it. Now, when you turn over to Alfrich, uh, we get apocalyptic in a way that I find a lot more familiar, right? You get, uh, you do eventually at the end of the sermon get a sort of personal apocalypse, uh, and I want to I want to start with that because I don't want to give the sense that he is part of a uh, uh, millennium cult uh, in the way that we think about it in the late 19th century or whatever else. Uh, he says that, you know, God could come at any time. That could be a long time from now. But your end is coming relatively soon, uh, so you should take these things seriously as well. But he does call for uh, uh, a an awareness, a an awareness-making, if you will. And I love that old English word. Uh, because it is, you know, just a great transla translation uh, of what is going on in so many of these New Testament texts when it comes to the uh, the end of the age, right? Uh, what's also interesting about this uh, is that in this apocalypse, what what uh, Alfredch focuses on is that those who are in Christ are going to have a revelation of angelic orders, uh, and he seems to be aware. And again. Uh, we talked a little bit, David, earlier about just how profoundly literate he was and how uh, insistent he was on bringing good learning to the priests of England. Uh, but he seems to be aware of uh, the angelic orders of Dionysius, or if you find him in a modern library, pseudo-Dionysius, uh, because he makes uh, a pretty good list of them. And, and the again, the old English terms for those are wonderful. And one other little bit that I want to point up before I hand it back to you, David, is that he is insistent, and I found this fascinating, uh, that the new heavens and the new earth will not be an annihilation. The old heavens and the old, worth, old earth will not be destroyed, but they will be renewed. Uh, and this is something, you know, when I was in uh, Milligan College, a Christian liberal arts college, and when I was in seminary, uh, one of the things that our Bible professors drilled into us is that the 19th century notion of a total annihilation of all things at the coming of Christ is not what the New Testament presents. 
uh, what the New Testament presents is a renewal of uh, that which God called very good in Genesis uh, chapter 2 uh, and called good in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, and, you know, here, you know, in the 10th century, uh, you know, Alfred has not lost sight of that. So, I mean, I think that that's a, a fascinating little bit because, you know, if you are not aware of Alfred, you know, first of all, you might think that there were no English Bibles uh, before Wycliffe. And second of all, you might not know that he was teaching the renewal of the world at the end of the age rather than its annihilation. Um, so David, uh, you know, uh, those, are the, those are the bits that jumped out at me. What other things do you want our listeners to hear? Oh, I think you've covered it far more thoroughly uh, than, than me. I was, I was just thinking in terms of uh, uh, the, the ways that G- Jesus coming is an apocalypse. It is the Lord visiting his people. It is a coming judgment and all those kinds of things. And uh, your, your reminder, Michael, that, that Advent isn't just sort of pre-Christmas. Um, is is reminding us that uh, the first coming of Christ is also, uh, in 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 a sense, a a revealing of an end and a judgment. Uh, perhaps perhaps not uh, the final chronological judgment, but in some sense, uh, uh, an an ultimate uh, visitation of the Lord. He's kind of ambiguous about that though, wouldn't you say? Cause he, he says what Nathan says, which is that the world won't be destroyed, but renewed through the fire at the end of the world. But he also says that the world as we know it is pretty much just a means to an end anyway, which is why you're not yeah. supposed to be sad about the end of the world. Cause it's gonna, it's gonna be wiped away anyway. That whole section reminded me of some of the arguments that Coyle and Ed have been having on City of Man about the lastingness of human endeavor. It mm-hmm. didn't really solve it didn't really clear up the problem for me, but it reminded me of the of those discussions. Yeah. I mean if there's anything to account for that, if you compare Chrysostom and you compare uh, to to Alfred of Inchum and Incham, their their contexts are so very different, uh, especially 10th century Alfred, uh, when the the threat of uh, invasion, the threat of of plague, um, uh, the social instability, all those sorts of things uh, are are for him part of just the nature of the world and it's the world encouraging you to not attach itself to these incredibly fleeting things like um, political power or riches because you know vikings could land tomorrow (laughs) right (laughs) whereas john is living in such an advanced civilization yes yeah i mean he's you know he preaches as if he's always going to be able to have you know perfume wearing rich fancy people uh that he can cast right there's no huns yet right right uh this is back when istanbul was constantinople yes there's a song about that anyways one of the things that uh 
you pointed out, Nathan, about the the renewal of heaven and earth. Yeah, he he does have that um, that pessimism that you mentioned, Michael. But he says, then will the sun be sevenfold brighter than it is now, and the moon will have the light of the sun. What's really interesting is there's another one of his sermons. I wish I could remember off the top of my head which one it is. Um, I think it might be his sermon on the creation of the world, which is one of the very first in the series, in which he says that as a result of the fall of man, uh, as a result of the of the fall of man, the sun is darker and the moon is darker. That before the fall, the sun was. I, I think this might even be the same the same language that he used before that before the fall the sun was sevenfold brighter than it is now and the moon shone like the sun um so in this very precise way for alfredge this is this is a way of saying the earth will be restored to what it was before uh it came to be defined by our sin and and that kind of brings us back to chrysostom because he says that john the baptist is calling us to return to a pre-civilized state that's not wilderness. I mean, I guess he's, he's saying yeah. John the Baptist is asking us to return to the garden and take care of it in a way that Adam and Eve did not. But there is a sort of remaking that's actually a reversion as opposed to a, a, a complete overhaul. Mm-hmm. That's, oh, that's really interesting. John the Baptist as a kind of prefigured uh, uh, humanity or world repristinated, or if, if that's if that's the right way to pronounce that word. Hmm. So we've already kind of hinted at this, uh, but very specifically, what are some ways in which uh, these two these two preachers are applying these texts to the very specific context in which in which they are preaching. Michael? Yeah, I um I'm not exactly sure what you're asking with that question, David, but it, it does seem to me that both of them are asking you not to be too attached to the society you live in because it's going to be destroyed or transfigured or reverted or whatever. And asceticism is in a lot of ways turning away from the values of your society into values that, frankly, probably have never made sense to any human civilization. Um, I don't think fasting and repentance and asceticism, I don't think those things come naturally to anybody, let alone to, uh, let alone to prosperous societies like Chrysostom's in particular. But I, I don't know how specific that is. Um, what did you have in mind with that question? I think you're what what you've what you've just observed there is it's sort of what I've noticed, but the but the tone is very different, right? In ways that we've already hinted to um, when we compared the the prosperity of Byzantium with the sort of uh, the 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 imminent or the sense of imminent peril and the fragility of of civilization and security. Uh, in Alfred's context, I mean, both, precarity. Yeah, both of them are saying asceticism is the solution, but one of them, you're fleeing, you know, the city of gold and perfume and softness, 
right? Uh, that that John Chrysostom keeps talking about soft clothes, and he feels like he has to explain to people what it's like to wear a tight belt. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. You know, while for Alfred, she's like, yeah, the world is ending. Have you guys looked around lately? <laughs> but but for both of them, those things, whether it's the softness and the gold, or whether it's, you know, the burning and the imminent destruction um, and the peril, both of those things are driving you to the... To, uh, this, the same kind of the same kind of reaction. It's I, I just found it so interesting that both of them are um, dealing in in such different contexts and finding the same application. You know, well, it's it's interesting that Alfred is the one who's so interested in the apocalypse because he seems to already live in an apocalyptic age. You know, it's it's right. looking at Alfred's world that we see how fragile and precarious human life really is you know like what does he even need to be reminded of uh whereas christostom's audience really probably does need to be reminded of that as um as we do too probably i think we're probably more aware of the fragility of our civilization than we were oh 15 20 years ago but still i suspect we're more in the christostom camp than in the alfred's camp although in that way michael uh Alfred is a more natural uh, apocalyptic preacher because apocalypse, you know, I mean, in its uh, Second Temple context and in its, you know, early Christian context, is a literature written to and for persecuted people. So, I mean, you know, the the message of, you know, the final book of the New Testament, Apocalypsis, uh, is precisely that, you know, despite the seeming invincibility and, and despite the seeming splendor of Rome, uh, nonetheless, you know, Christ in his return is going to reveal the truth of those things, which is that, you know, there is no golden eagle, there's only a dragon, and there is no uh, grand emperor, there is only a beast with seven horns. Right. And well, and I, I said that Advent is a season of asceticism and repentance. It's also a season of hope. But it's a hope that can only shine in the very darkest part of the year. So Chrysostom yeah, is in yeah. this interesting position where he has to convince his audience that the world is a heck of a lot darker than they initially perceive it to be. That things are much worse mm-hmm. than they think it is because they have the perfume and the gold and the fine clothes. They're, they're tempted to think that things are okay, when in reality, the, the, the actual human condition looks like Alfred's world, not like, uh, not like Chrysostom's. And I mean, I mean one, of the, one of the helpful things that can happen with national tragedy, and I, I have 9-11 in mind in particular, is it shows us the extent to which our, uh, our comfort and our safety is just a big lie you know that maybe i hope our listeners understand what i'm saying here maybe a positive side effect of living in a society where you can legitimately fear anytime you go out into public that you might be the victim of a mass shooter is it reminds you that you are fragile and and mortal uh whereas otherwise you might be uh tempted to think otherwise I'm not saying, of course, that mass shootings are a good thing, just that they might have that one positive side effect. Yeah. 
this past Sunday, uh, the Sunday morning study that I'm co-teaching, we're looking at old Christmas songs, and this last week we were looking at uh, the Coventry Carol, which comes from a mystery play, which is about the massacre of the innocents. And we were talking about the way that we, you know, we looked at the lyrics of the song and we looked at the story as it as it's plays out in Matthew two. And then we said, now, now, imagine yourself watching this play and hearing this song in a culture in which the infant mortality rate is baseline 25 to 35%, right? In which every single person in the crowd and on the stage uh, has had a child to die in infancy, has had a sibling die in infancy. Uh, almost every adult in that crowd has held a dying infant. Um, there's, there's something so different about um, the way that that a, a culture that's not uh, insulated by safety <laughs> can encounter those things. Um, and again, nobody wants this, right? Uh, and and no no one in the 16th century who was watching the Coventry Carol wanted that for anyone. Um, but uh, I I think I think it 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 that that reality in the story of the gospel, um, the story of the nativity, uh, it hits in a particular way. Um, if you are living in a world that's more like Alfred's and less like John Chrysostom's, and th- and that's one of those things, David. And I, I'm, I'm probably going to get in trouble with listeners saying this, but what else is new? But it's at the very least a question that I don't know how to answer. Uh, but I mean, one thing that occurs to me is that, you know, the the season of Advent and the liturgy of Advent uh, acknowledges that danger and that darkness to the world, and its response is to pray. Uh, but it seems to me that, you know, both in the case of, you know, 9-11, to use Michael's example, and in the cases of mass shootings, you know, our, our 21st century response is something bad happens and we say we need to impose political power on it to make it stop. And again, I, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, political action is inherently bad, but I think at the very least it's worth noting that our responses are very different from what the responses historically have been within the faith. Right. Uh, well, and, I mean, but the truth is, those political responses, even if they're successful, even if there never is another terrorist attack, even if there is never another mass shooting, the mortality rate is still 100%. Yeah. To, to some yeah. extent, yeah. Th- those fixes are just going to blind us from the actual human condition. And once again, listeners, I am not saying that we oughtn't do anything about the things that kill people. Um, just that doing something about that does not solve the problem. It does not make the darkness of this time of year any less dark. And it shouldn't. Yeah. I, I do think it's it's really helpful here to say that, or to, you know, to point out that we have in, we have in, 
the book of Proverbs and in most of the Psalms a vision of what it looks like to have a kind of peaceful prosperity of justice that comes from wisdom and fear of the Lord. That is, in some sense, what humans are made for, right? Um, but on the other hand, you've got the other half of the Psalms and the book of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes saying that vision is not the whole truth and there are things that we can learn from the fact that we live in a world that's not completely defined by what we wish was always the case. And even more than those, David, we've got books like Habakkuk, uh, and I, I, I only bring that up because I preached it a few weeks ago, uh, where you nice. know Habakkuk comes to Yahweh and says, you know, the wicked are oppressing me and there's injustice in the city and your name is disrespected among the faithful and what are you going to do about it, Yahweh? And Yahweh's response is, oh, don't worry about that. The Babylonians are coming over the hill and they're going to blow it all up. <laughs> yeah. That was kind of a downer of a sermon, by the way. Sounds like. It's, I don't a, think it's a time of year for downer sermons. <laughs> <laughs> Except it was during ordinary time. I jumped the gun. <laughs> <laughs> You've yeah, always been Nate, ahead of your time, Nathan. By three weeks. <laughs> See, I was going to say that he's just ordinarily this way. Oh, also true. And a bad pun. More glossolalia from David Grubbs. Huzzah. Well, actually, actually, David, can I tell one more Glossolalia story? By all means. Because uh, th this is one of those things where uh, I uh, I was, at the same time, illiterate and also more educated than I realized. But uh, when I was reading this uh, translation of, uh, of Alfred's sermon, I got to this phrase, the senescent world, and mm -hmm. I had no idea what that meant. <laughs> so I actually oh. looked across the column and I saw Aalda yend on Midanyerda, and I said, oh, the world that's getting old. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the oldening world. That's yes, where yes, senile I... comes from, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, but I, my uh, old English is a lot stronger than my Latin. Yep. That's called yep. a humble brag. Absolutely. Uh, listeners, uh, when this post, we'll put up, uh, we'll put up the link to... Uh, well, it's uh, the CCEL, the Christian Classics Ethereal Library, that has John Chrysostom. Uh, but I also have a PDF of Alfred's sermon taken from uh, an old public domain translation of his sermons, uh, which uh, I, I think we could post that too, could we? Is that something if that it's we PD, can do? We if, can. It, if it's public domain, it should be all right. Yeah, it's public domain. Got it off of Google Books. So, Yeah. Well, we've run through all of my questions. Uh, what else in these uh, old sermons is worth talking about, y'all? Well, I want to say what I often say when we talk about uh, biblical interpreters from centuries before our own, that one of the things that this reminds me of, uh, as someone who was trained in modern biblical scholarship, I got my, my master's degree in biblical studies, uh, but also who you know has spent some time studying interpreters like Chrysostom, like Alfrich, uh, is that we don't have to pit them against each other. It doesn't have to be a harmonizing view of things versus a pluralistic view of things. It doesn't have to be an allegorical version of things versus a historicist view of things. We can put them both into the same conversation. Now, we should note that they are different. We shouldn't pretend that they're doing the same thing because they're not. 
Uh, but what I would say, and I'm, I'm absolutely uh, borrowing this from uh, Walter Brueggemann, uh, is that different pastoral moments, different moments have different needs. And so therefore, I mean, I, I want to say to those of uh, those among our listeners who have been trained in that more modern historical critical method, uh, be open to the possibility that, you know, interpreters like Chrysostom, like Alfrich, uh, can reveal things about these texts. Uh, and I suppose, you know, if there are uh, listeners out there who are supremely suspicious of the higher criticism or whatever they're calling it these days, uh, understand that they also stand to teach us things every once in a while. Michael, what do you got? I'm interested in a, an ambivalence in Chrysostom's sermon, and this won't take long. He says that John the Baptist didn't work for his food or lodging. This is kind of proof of his asceticism. He just kind of uh, uses whatever he comes across. Uh, but then also, he says just a couple paragraphs later, that work grounds us in austerity and asceticism. And um, I, I just think it's interesting the role that uh, labor plays in our sanctification and our repentance for Chrysostom. Uh, maybe if we were truly ascetic, we wouldn't need it. But for the rest of us, uh, working hard can be a, a means of asceticism. Excellent. Well, dear listeners, that is all the conversation about these two sermons that we've got for today. Um, thank you all for joining me for it. I've, I've, I've really appreciated uh, getting a chance to talk about one text that has been familiar to me for a while, um, Alfred Shive has been an is is an old friend, and this sermon from uh, the sermon from John Chrysostom was one that I found you know much much more recently, and am kind of in love with a lot of the moves that he makes in it. So, so this has been a lot of fun for me. Well, what are we doing next time? Well, this is our Advent episode. Next week will be our Christmas episode, and we're going to be talking about uh, Washington Irving's. Uh, sketchbook of Jeffrey Crayon. This is a, an episode that we attempted uh, to record either last year or the year before. I can't remember which. And I made the mistake of recording on the computer where my son plays his online games. So this time <laughs> I'm going to record on a good machine and hopefully, listeners, you will actually be able to hear our conversation about Washington Irving. Excellent. Well, I really look forward to that. In the meanwhile, dear listeners, if you'd like to leave us comments on this particular show, you can post them on the show notes on our blog, christianhumanist.org. You can post them on our Facebook page. You can uh, send us uh, send them to our uh, email at uh, thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can also tweet them at us. Uh, all three of us are on Twitter currently, but also the network is on Twitter at uh, CH Radio Network, is that correct? I think yes. that is. Excellent. I, that, that, I'm still rusty on, on tossing that bit of information in. Anyway, I'm David Grubbs. You've been listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison, liaison is Kristen Philippic. And I'm David Grubbs on behalf of Michael Farmer and Nathan Gilmore saying... Let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger.